Sarah B. here. So welcome back to Self-Care with Dr. Sarah. This is the second part of our two-part episode on imposter syndrome. Uh, so without further ado, back to the show. Do you want to talk about some of your triggers? Yeah, well, I want to give one more of my most outlandish <laughs> imposter thoughts. <laughs> okay. um, and, this is, and this is a recent one. And as Sarah mentioned, I was uh, invited for this faculty of opportunity hire. No big deal. And you like hadn't even graduated from your PhD, but. And, and I felt, well, you know, I've peaked as a scientist. The reason why, <laughs> the reason why this has happened is I peaked as a scientist in my last year of graduate school and it's only going to be downhill from here. So this is like the only reason why, um, this happened so early is just because I'm peaking and like, it's going to, it's, you know, oh, sure, sure, so sure. better grab on now. Otherwise there's going to be no opportunities in the future. So, oh my goodness. Yeah. That's maybe my most, uh, recent and most outlandish imposter thought. Yeah. That's extremely outlandish. Um, but I still believe it's true. I definitely believe the peaking is true. You know? It might plateau. I'm hoping to plateau rather than go downhill. But, you know, time will tell. That's so funny. Um, yeah, that's that's absurd. <laughs> Let's talk about, like, our triggers. So I think another major way that folks can do self-care, the overarching theme of this podcast, is by recognizing their patterns. So... Recognizing your own patterns and knowing what situations ahead of time are going to be extra challenging for you so that you can meet that situation head on instead of kind of being tumbled around in the waves, um, which is really disorienting and scary. One of my favorite things to do related to the imposter syndrome is just use kind of mindfulness practices. I put myself in a situation in my mind where I, like a visualization exercise where I know that it's going to be deeply uncomfortable to remember that or to visualize this scenario. And I kind of can force myself to keep taking deep breaths. It kind of feels like um, Pema Chodron gives this analogy. I'm really into mindfulness, but she says it's opening the window of a hot, stale room. When I'm in these situations, these imposter situations, it does feel like I'm in like a hot, stale room. And all of a sudden, I can't really breathe fully, and it feels really uncomfortable. So knowing ahead of time and kind of breathing through that situation um, is really helpful. And and recognizing I'm just having imposter thoughts right now, rather than doing this narrative, kind of the spiral, I'm not smart, it's only a matter of time, et cetera, et cetera, like all of these kind of imposter spiral thoughts, I just think I'm having a really bad imposter moment. I'm having an imposter kind of like flare up. One of them... <laughs> For for folks, for folks who are interested in planets, Sarah and I both work in kind of like this particular subfield of astrophysics and a subfield within a subfield of exoplanets like induces these extremely strong imposter thoughts in me. So a really good example is I was sitting in a colloquium one time at Harvard when I was a grad student and there was a speaker, a young male speaker, and he was talking about this particular subfield. In this subfield, I have a, a big result. It was like a, my first kind of big newsworthy result. He was talking about some of those results and he, and I just like wasn't included. Like he put kind of a slide of highlights and he put a bunch of highlighted papers and mine wasn't on there. So it was all kind of men's papers from this group. So I remember I had horrible imposter thoughts at that moment. And rather than thinking that it was an accident, like even an accident of implicit bias, which it probably is very likely that that informed some of that, um, I thought he didn't include my talk because everyone knows that it's not interesting. 
he didn't include it on purpose because it's just not worthwhile. It's not wor- worthy of inclusion. And I remember I was sitting in the colloquium room and feeling just like deeply uncomfortable and, and deeply sad. And that manifested physically. It manifests as kind of, it hurts in my stomach. I get really tense. I feel almost like a heavy weight in my stomach. And so one of my exercises to kind of grapple with imposter thoughts is to really work on breathing through that particular memory. I have other memories too, but for whatever reason, that one's really, really powerful. And it's really vivid. And I remember thinking very strongly, this guy is going to make it. This guy giving the talk, like he is the type of person who's really going to make it. And he's a person that's going to be so desirable for faculty jobs. And I'm just uh, not interesting and my work isn't worthwhile. I just like very, very powerful imposter thoughts. Do you want to share one of your like triggers? Yeah, well, so kind of parallel to that, I have this common sentence that I use, Sarah, (laughs) all the time, where I say, all my research is derivative. (laughs) I'm pretty sure that's true. You love this word. You love this word. I love the word derivative. (laughs) (laughs) I use it often when describing my own research, not necessarily (laughs) when describing anyone else's research, just my own. And, and so when I definitely, when I compare myself, when I think of what a, you know, quote unquote, real astrophysicist is, I think of these huge leaps rather than what most research is, is more, you know, taking an incremental idea and progress and moving on in. at the frontier. Yeah. This incremental progress. And I don't know, I think of general relativity and, and, you know, so it's like, I'm holding <laughs> myself up to this, you know, gold standard that, it's pretty Gold difficult to Nobel attain. Prize. Yeah, you know, no big deal. <laughs> um, and so, so I just assume all my work is derivative, and then, and then whenever I hear comments about my work, um, I always interpret them in that light. Mm-hmm. That's something that I also do. You know, um, if if it's a positive comment about my research, then I say, well, but they're just being nice or etc. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't know. Maybe they don't know the, the mm-hmm. work that it's derivative from. Or, or if they say, oh yeah, that's a, you know, uh, you, you know, expanded on this, blah, blah, blah. And I'll be like, yep, they know, they know, (laughs) they they know know that my my work is, is derivative. (laughs) Um, you know, and, and I think this feeds into my other imposter thought that, you know, I'm just not intrinsically smart enough or creative enough. I don't learn as fast as other people. I don't remember things, um, as well as other people. And if someone knew everything about me, you know, warts and all, they would definitely not want to hire me as, as a faculty candidate. So I definitely think that I can, quote, look good on paper or, mm-hmm. or um, I present well. I don't have imposter thoughts about giving an oral presentation because mm-hmm. I worked a lot at that skill set. Uh, but similar to you, Sarah, you know, I tend to think that maybe people only like me because I'm friendly and smile a lot or, or other reasons other than, than that I'm a good scientist. It's actually really hard for me to say that I'm a good scientist in a sentence, all those words together. Cause I just yeah. don't feel that. And I feel like if they knew, if they only knew, then, then they wouldn't want me. So one of the things I do to help this is, uh, and this is another self-care strategy is free writing or uh, value affirmation yeah, let's writing. Talk about that. Yeah. And, and so I actually have my journal here, and, and I write, you know, I'm going to read a few sentences from it. So I do a lot of, um, 
when I'm most stressed, I find meditation sometimes helps, but sometimes my mind is so busy with thoughts that I can't calm down. And even after 10 minutes of meditating, I've just kind of spun around and, and not actually landed anywhere. And I don't feel any more calm than I was 10 minutes before, but something that's really worked well for me is just free writing, like, uh, just kind of general association writing. And, and so one of these things is I'll just repeat some things. I'll say, I will graduate. I will. Or, you know, um, I will, uh, I am already feeling better, you know, or I was a positive influence on an undergrad today. Um, and, and I'll say things like, uh, in the value affirmation, I wrote things such as, I like that I value the whole person. I like that I value balance. I like that I value friendships and family. I like that I can make a difference in department culture. I like that I live life to the fu- fullest and do not take it for granted. So some of the things that I write are just things that I value about myself, and that also calms down uh, the imposter thoughts. There's this really great New York Times article called The Moral Bucket List, and the author comments that there's two sets of virtues. Uh, one is the resume virtues, and the other is the eulogy virtues. Mm-hmm. And and this led me to think, what are mine? And so I actually wrote down in my journal, like, the, the eulogy virtues versus the resume virtues. So, you know, there's, there's quote-unquote, the, you know, obvious successes, you know, such as having a PhD in astrophysics, you know, from Harvard, giving a Harvard Horizons talk, uh, you know, teaching at Tufts <laughs> University, doing Irish dance, mountaineering, other things. Oh, yeah. But my, my eulogy ended up to be things more like, you know, that I... I'm a, I consider determination to be one of my superpowers or that I'm positive despite adversity, that I'm encouraging to other people, that I'm adventurous, and that I really focus on life's priorities. So I think writing those down and being aware of yourself as a full person is a way, one way to combat the imposter syndrome. Like you say, Sarah, um, that's really borne out in studies of values affirmation as a practice. Um, so I guess I'll cite two of them and we can put links to these when we post this podcast, but one major study that I like to highlight is, um, first author is Miyake et al. 2010 published in science. And it was, um, employing values affirmation as, as a sort of strategy and intervention strategy in a situation where imposter thoughts or where stereotype threat is operative. So this was an undergraduate physics class at a major public university, And in those classes, women tend to underperform as compared to their male peers by something like 10%. So in this study, uh, it involved two 15-minute writing exercises, and it's almost exactly like you described, Sarah. It's not about science at all. The sample group chose a value from a list of potential values, including sense of humor, relationships with family, what you would call eulogy values or eulogy qualities, um, And they wrote for 15 minutes about why that mattered to them. And then the control group picked a quality that didn't particularly matter to them and wrote about why it might matter to somebody else. Two things. The first is that it totally removed that performance gap uh, in this class so that the, um, so it it made no difference on the scores of men, um, but it improved the performance of women. And they tested the students beforehand to kind of see how much, to what degree they subscribe to ideas about gender being predictive of scientific ability. And those women who kind of subscribe to those ideas, they actually stood the most to gain. So if you, if you had really internalized these thoughts that your gender was what was responsible for you not being as smart, 
uh, in science, you actually uh, benefited uh, in greatest measure from this. And that was, um, so that's my favorite study, but I read one out of the Harvard Business School recently that bore that out as a function of race, too. So this was with um, black and Latino seventh graders. They also did a values affirmation exercise very similar where they were writing about um, things that mattered to them. And it removed kind of the performance gap, so it's called, in this group. But then those students who were actually performing the worst stood the most to gain and gained the most. So that really kind of speaks to something which is really reflective of yours and my kind of self-care values, which is that it's really, these qualities are really linked within us, which is our identity and the things that we value personally about ourselves and our scientific performance. And I think people kind of act like those things are separate and maybe they are, you know, for some of our colleagues. But I think what these studies are showing is that there is a cognitive load that's born more by some folks than others. It's like a CPU of your of a computer that's constantly running, and there's a cost there where you're kind of always, as our colleague and friend John Johnson puts it, you're constantly running <laughs> a job in the background of a yeah. CPU um, that's called WTF, was that racist? <laughs> <laughs> and um, by you can kind of um, interrogate that and kind of budget even though it might feel impossible to budge because those those feelings are bearing down on you so heavily and inexorably, but by reflecting on things that really matter to you, you can get some relief. Um, and it's, yeah. it seems like you just kind of stumbled on that with your journal, which is almost like exactly what they say in these studies to do. Yeah. And yeah. well, I'm glad, I'm glad that happened. <laughs> you know, there's another book that I read that's really interesting. It's called the happiness advantage. And, um, a lot of research, has shows that if you're in a happier state of mind, you will perform better. And there are things that we can do um, to increase our happiness, such as uh, meditation, exercise, value affirmation, the value affirmation exercise we just talked about, also five random acts of kindness for someone in one day over this, and then like repeated once a week. And so there's different, and these things all have different research uh components to it, I highly recommend the TED Talk by Sean Acker on this topic, um, where, where all those citations are. But I think it's what, what I pulled away from that is that we just function better when we're on running on all, you know, all of our CPUs, as, yeah, as uh, Sarah and, and John Johnson said. If you have imposter syndrome running in the background, despite the fact that most people with the imposter syndrome are very, very successful, uh, I feel like just think of what we could do if that all that you know CPU load was released. <laughs> I mean, we'd be unstoppable. Um, and so it's <laughs> it's it's worthwhile to try to you know come up with strategies that work for you uh, to reduce uh, your the feelings of an imposter syndrome because they do weigh you down. And like I really noticed that mostly in my first year where I couldn't even very well function other than doing the bare minimum to kind of stay afloat. Yeah. That's what I advise students now when they're talking about um, my imposter thoughts are so heavy and I just don't know what to do and I feel like I'm supposed to drop out. You know, what what should I do? And I say, I know that it seems sort of paradoxical, but one thing that's been demonstrated to be really helpful is to not, is to reflect on parts of yourself that have nothing to do with science. They have nothing really to do with your career at all. It has everything to do with your relationships with other people and the things that you hold dear. I guess there was another thing I wanted to mention, which is related to 
why women in particular make the transition from undergraduate bachelor's degree in STEM to a PhD program, to a graduate program. So this is in the National Academies Beyond Bias and Barriers study, which we'll also link to. And they asked folks who were in graduate programs in STEM why they chose to why they chose to pursue those programs. And for men, um, they tended to say that they pursued graduate study because they felt that they were good at the subject or because they felt they had something to contribute or, or because they thought it would result in kind of like monetary gain for them. Like, this is something that's going to be fruitful for me. I can support myself this way. And women overwhelmingly said that it was because someone encouraged them to, who mattered to them. So not even necessarily a scientist, just kind of a trusted figure. When And that's definitely my story. That's, absolute, uh, that's absolutely my story. Not only with graduate school, where a professor at Berkeley stopped me in the hallway of the astronomy building and said, have you thought about applying to graduate school? Um, I hope you do. And until that point, I kind of hadn't thought about it. And then even when I was really young, when I was 18 and starting at college and was confronting this decision about whether I should stay in the humanities, which is where I kind of thought I would, I thought I would stay, or whether I should make this big transition to physical science. I had kind of been inspired by an astronomy class, and I wasn't sure whether I could do it, though, whether I could pursue it and major in it. And three separate people had to tell me, you should do it. You absolutely can do it. You're the, you're my best student in the case of the TA or, um, in the case of the undergraduate, um, advisor at letters and science, this is what it's supposed to feel like when you find something that you're supposed to do. And there, but for the grace of those three people go, I, you know, um, I don't know what would have happened in my mental process if I hadn't received that encouragement. And that just really affirms to me how intertwined my scientific success is with my relationships with others. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't think I would have stayed in without my dad, you know, telling me on the phone six times that, yeah. no, it's okay, it'll get better. And and I believed him because he had gone through it um, before himself. And, and so... Your dad had imposter thoughts? I don't... Oh, no, I mean that he had gone through grad school. I don't know. We never talked about the imposter syndrome while he was alive because I didn't know that it was a real thing <laughs> while he was alive. <laughs> you know, I'm sure, I'm sure he did. Well, you know what he would say to me, uh, is he would say, you know, Sarah, all my children are smarter than me. Oh. He, he would say that all the time. And, and he would always say little comments about how he didn't feel that he was smart. So I'm sure he had it. I don't think he knew he had it either. He would often compare himself. I remember negatively to other professors in his department, even though, you know, he won, uh, the University Teaching Award, I think, like, all but two years of the 37 years he taught there or something ridiculous like that. And so, oh my goodness. you know, but he would maybe undervalue that and then compare his research. So I, I'm sure he had the imposter syndrome, but again, I didn't know it was, and, and, and he passed away my second year, so I never really talked to him about it. You know, just his encouragement that I could get through this uh, really was instrumental in me continuing on. Well, he's a really special man. Yeah. Um... I think we should probably wrap up. Yeah, I think we should mention some of the, the resources that are available. I feel like, like uh, I feel like emotionally drained. <laughs> it's really hard to talk about imposter syndrome. Yeah, it is because as much as we laugh about it, I think the reason why I find it draining is because I'm still, at least on the current thoughts that I have, I'm still like 80% sure they're true. You know, I can... <laughs> 
I can recognize that they're an imposter thought, and I can recognize them, but I still... Oh, my God. In my heart of hearts, I think they're mostly true, and someday, soon, I'll be vindicated in that that assumption. Um, You are so funny. Wait, let's talk about one other strategy that you and I use, which honestly is, like... Uh, like it's kind of unfair like we kind of bet against ourselves like with each other (laughs) so we'll just mercilessly take advantage of our imposter of the other's imposter thoughts so I remember um when I was defending my PhD I was convinced I was not going to pass the defense and I or that at the very most I would get a conditional pass conditional pass conditional pass the conditional pass I remember this was big at the time um and Sarah was like well I'll bet you a really fancy dinner that you'll pass and I was like I'll take that bet. <laughs> oh yeah, and of course oh, yeah. I had to buy you a fancy dinner. And yeah, we're kind I've of. I've done the same. Yeah, I've done the same. You know, I think. What did I think? I said I wouldn't get a fellowship. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, right. So right. I, I think I still haven't paid up on that bet. I think I still owe you a fancy dinner. <laughs> and then you know, I also like thought I would fail my you know master's research exam. Ooh, right. Um, yes. So we bet on that. We we've had all sorts of bets, but that's really you know. And what's nice is we get to share. We get to share the the fruits of that together because we both get a really nice dinner out of it. So it's, know, it's a win-win. You just don't know who's paying in the end. I know. But it's so clear to us that the other is so talented that we're like, I'll take that bet. Like, the odds are yeah. amazing. There, there hasn't been a single bet that, that we've bet against, you know, or, or for the other person that we've lost. So all of the imposter syndrome thoughts, the pre-ones, have always turned out to be false. That's like a sure. fun note to end on. Okay, why don't, um, why don't you talk about the resources on your website, Sarah? Yeah, so um, I have a website. Uh, uh, it's www.cfa.harvard.edu slash twiddle srukheimer. And then on that website is a woman in STEM resources tab. And I try to keep that. I need to update it, but I try to keep it current with... Uh, peer-reviewed research that shows uh, bias or other factors that impact women in science and technology, as well as blog posts about various things such as the imposter syndrome. It's sort of a repository of research of all the links that I think are interesting mm-hmm. and, and that I would I was trying to find them all a million times, and so I just put them all in one spot, and I thought that only I would ever find this useful, but it actually has kind of made the tour even in some uh, media outlets across the country, and so oh. that's that's a, a website that I hope to add a lot more because I, in my last year, I didn't maintain it very well, but please check that out. And if you ever find anything that you think would be a good addition, please feel free to send it to me. Yeah. I just love that idea because you, Sarah always has like a gazillion tabs open, like in any one <laughs> internet browser. I'm just picking, I'm just picturing like, like all right of these tabs. Yeah. It just makes me break out in hives, even looking at all the tabs. Um, so, and, and then I was going to give a shout out to some resources that are on my own website. Um, I ran an imposter syndrome workshop actually that Sarah attended, um, mm-hmm. when we were graduate students. Um, because when we were at Harvard, Uh, Valerie Young visited, who's um, sort of an expert on the imposter syndrome, and she gave a talk, and then I followed up on that through the Harvard Graduate Women in Science and Engineering with a three-part workshop where we kind of worked through some of the activities that were in Valerie Young's workbook together. Um, Mm -hmm. And as part of that workshop, I developed a bunch of resources. I've since run the workshop 
for graduate students at a large handful of places, including here at the University of Washington. I made those resources available to folks, including the snippet of code that I wrote to make imposter syndrome bingo cards. <laughs> and um, that's on my website too, and, and we'll link to that. So let's talk about where folks can find us uh, on the internet. So we um, have a new website and we have a new Twitter account, and our handle for both of those things is Doctors Sarah Care. So we're plural, Doctors Sarah. So D R S, and then our name S A R A H Care C A R E. Um, so that's our handle on Twitter, and also our website on Tumblr. So that's Doctors Sarah Care. T U M B L R. Com, and that's where we're going to be posting um, a lot of the links that we've been talking about in this episode, and and we hope that you find those useful for you. So let's go ahead and sign off. Um, I'm Sarah B. I'm Sarah R. And thank you for listening to Self-Care with Dr. Sarah.